Well, welcome, folks, to the Daily Evolver. It is Wednesday, December 13th, 2017, and I'm happy to be with you for this, our last week before we go for three weeks on Christmas break and um, and have the What Now Conference. So we'll be back on January 8th. We will do an episode this Friday, though, so stay tuned in for that. Um, today, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the lessons from this amazing uh, election in Alabama and to, you know, do a three cheers for the liberals. <laughs> you know, my liberal green Jeff is all kind of excited and worked up. So I want to talk a little bit about that. But before I do, I just wanted to share a article that I thought was really interesting in the New York Times last week on a story that we've talked about before, uh, and that is the, the hurricane uh, and the, the whole raft of hurricanes with Florida and, and Houston and uh, particularly Puerto Rico. And this is an article on the you know, planning and recovery for Puerto Rico. And you know, one of the things I talked about and have talked about a number of times is this sort of upside of the shock doctrine. You know, Naomi Klein talks about in her book, The Shock Doctrine, Disaster Capitalism is the subtitle. Um, how after a disaster or sometimes a disaster of a war, or sometimes a you know, man-made disaster, uh, when the people are disoriented and desperate, capitalism comes in and sort of reorganizes in its own way. And that's true. And the, um, <clears throat> the part of her critique that is, I think, most potent is the one that regards the left-hand quadrants or what we would talk about the consciousness and culture of a people that is, in many cases, priced out of a new gentrified market. Uh, but there's an upside. And that is the, on the right-hand quadrants, uh, in the world of, of actual stuff and systems, a new infrastructure is created that is able to survive the recurrence of the next event that caused the original disaster. So the next hurricane, the next flood, the next wildfire. And, um, and that's the case here with this uh, article about um, Puerto Rico, and it's called Puerto Politics and Disasters Provide Fresh, Fresh Incentive for Energy Innovations. And um, I'll read just a few paragraphs. They start out by saying, the impulse to help rebuild Puerto Rico, an often neglected corner of the nation that has struggled after the storm, after, and that's uh, Hurricane Maria, has rippled through many corners of America. The impulse to help rebuild has, has um, uh, rippled through many corners of America. And I like to pause there. I think that's true. Um, I know a lot of friends talked about giving to the Red Cross and so forth about the Puerto Rican uh, the recovery. And I think that's just nice to note. Uh, but then they go on, they say, but in the world of electricity research, an equally powerful idea about the island has resonated. It is a chance to work on a blank canvas. And they go on, they said, researchers' heads have danced with visions of self-sufficient microgrids and solar-harnessed battery systems as they dream of giving Puerto Rico a new power system that is cleaner and less carbon-intensive than the fossil fuel-dependent one the storm wrecked. The island is becoming an important proving ground for ideas about how low-carbon energy can be practical, both technically and financially. 
And then they talk about how both it's happening both in the public and private side. And they start with the companies. Companies are jumping in. Tesla, the electric vehicle and energy company based in Palo Alto, California, created and installed a project using solar generation and battery electricity storage for a children's hospital in San Juan in October and recently announced plans for six more battery projects on two Puerto Rican islands. Orensis Corporation, a Los Angeles-based company specializing in off-the-grid electricity, installed a generating system at a refugee support center in Fajardo, aiming to use building waste from the disaster itself as fuel. And then they go on the political side. There's an emphasis on the political side as well. They talk about this um, new uh, U.S. Climate Alliance, which is an organization of states committed to carbon reduction. It's Jerry Brown, Inslee from Washington, Andrew Cuomo, and I guess other states, and, and how they're just going all out for energy independence. And they quote David Victor, who teaches energy policy at the University of California, San Diego. He said, it's partly an effort to cement leadership around climate change, which is politically very popular. And he added, the elect election of Donald Trump has probably made it more popular. <laughs> so a little unintended consequences for Trump's presidency. Um, yeah, so I guess that's what I wanted to say. Uh, um, yeah, and then he talked about the transportation grid and um, that there, uh, there's a, a, a good blank slate there. And, um, you know, there's not much downside culturally in this case, because, you know, the culture is still going to be the culture and, and, and Puerto Rico is an island. Most of the people will stay there, although I guess there's been quite an exodus to Florida. Uh, but at any rate, when you modernize an electricity grid, it benefits everybody pretty much. And, um, and, and, and this seems like not just a flooding in of modernity, but a flooding in of post-modernity. They talk about these companies and these, you know, organizations and, and universities that are really making it their job to um, get in there and help Puerto Rico. So I think that's worth noting. All right. Now, <laughs> Roy Moore and Doug Jones. Yay. We won one. We won another one, actually. And, uh, you know, before we leave this story, um, I just want to uh, make a, I, I, I did a, a whole thing on it a few weeks ago. Uh, and more. But I just want to hit some of the high points of how this really helps us in terms of understanding integral theory and how integral theory helps us understand what's going on. And, um, and this is such a vivid show of stage theory, particularly uh, the, the evolution of culture. And, you know, what this represents with the Democrat winning in Alabama, perhaps the most Republican state in the union, certainly one of the two or three most Republican, uh, is the vanishing end of old time, Old Testament patriarchy in the United States. And, you know, we talk about the three big worldviews, the three big stages of development that are online in the states. And that's one is traditionalism, the other is modernity and postmodernity. Now, integrals coming out of postmodernity, and you know, there's a stage before traditionalism. But you know, those are the th three big stages. But they're sort of early and late versions of each of those. And um, the Old Testament patriarchy is really the beginning level 
of traditionalism. It's early traditionalism. It's where <clears throat> you're first <clears throat> civilizing yourself. And, and the world is civilizing itself from the previous stage, which is what we call the red warrior stage, where it's basically might is right. And, you know, hopefully you have a good clan or a good powerful group to be a member of, but, or gang, but if you don't, you're prey. And so this reorganizes a new stage of development. And, and it's interesting. I always remember, I don't know whether it's actually Moses or Charlton Heston, but comes down from the mountain and talks about, about, I'm here to bring you freedom. I'm here to free you. And it's interesting that, you know, we now think of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not, and, you know, pray, and we shall, don't take the name of the God in vain, and all of that sort of thing. It's, it doesn't feel like freedom so much as it does limits. But it is freedom. From that point of view, it's a freedom from um, your base emotions. It's a, it's a liberation from that, from savagery, from, from, from always trying to protect yourself, from always trying to get ahead. And now you have a new job, and that is to organize yourself according to the law of a transcendent God, whose the vengeance is his. You don't have to worry about revenge. You don't have to worry about any of these blood feuds. Your, your job is simply to build God's kingdom on earth. And God gives you the rules for doing that. The Ten Commandments uh, is the beginning of that. And, you know, it's not, Ten Commandments is not about love and grace. That's the New Testament. But this is about obedience and discipline. And you can see why it is, you know, when you consider that's what we're doing. And, and for a lot of people, you know, we move up these stages as individuals, too. And at some point, that's what we need to do. We need to civilize our base in, impulses and learn how to sit down and shut up and join the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts or whatever it is we do. And, um, you know, we, we, we get um, upright. And, uh, and those laws that God um, gives us supersedes man's laws. And this is where Roy Moore was. I mean, he was a poster boy for this. He, he got in trouble twice for once for putting the Ten Commandments up in his courtroom. He was a judge. Uh, and the second was building a multi-ton um, uh, monument to the Ten Commandments and having it put on the uh, courthouse lawn. And, you know, you can't do that in America. I'm not sure why necessarily, but it, you can't. And, and, and that's and that's good. Um, but um, so that's where he is with, you know, this, this whole thing. And, and, and of course, with that sort of patriarchy, you know, girls are sexually mature and they get married off and it's a whole different thing. And we can feel it's one of the things as sort of an integral practice is that you know, we can feel as modernists and postmodernists that, you know, childhood has basically been extended. You know, the, the, we, we see that a 14-year-old girl, or even a 16-year-old girl, these are very immature. I mean, these, these, are, these are prey to a 30-plus-year-old man. And the idea in leading one into his house by the hand and laying down blankets is just, we can just feel the repulsion of that. And, uh, but in earlier stages, that's, that's less repulsive, you know, I mean, it's certainly at modernity, it, it is, and post-modernity, it's, it's visceral. But, you know, for, um, 
So, so we can see that, that that is just no longer accessible. That door is being closed. And, uh, and it's not just religious, but cultural, that there is a racial pride that, 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 that the people, there are a lot of people in Alabama and elsewhere who still feel that, you know, warmth arise at the, at the site of the Confederate flag. You know, as they think of bygone days where people were genteel, um, you know, they sipped, sipped mint juleps when they weren't working the slaves in the field. And families were closer, as the one, I guess, lawyer from Moore talked about, except for when they had their children taken away and sold out from under them. So, you know, it's that, that whole thing is just, it's not holding up anymore. Uh, it's not that it's gone by any means. Uh, we still had 68%, and this is, you know, still shocking. 68% of white people voted for more in Alabama. Uh, and, you know, so that it's still very much alive. I, I, I was struck by a tweet by Jerry Falwell Jr., where he talked about Alabama voters are too smart to let the media and establishment Republicans and Democrats tell them how to vote. I hope the spirit of Leonard Skinnerd is alive and well, sweet home Alabama, where Watergate does not bother me. Does your conscience bother you? Tell me true. And we all know that song. Sweet home Alabama, Watergate does not bother me. Does your conscience bother you? Tell me truth. That's in the air, that song. And I never thought of it as necessarily political. I always thought, you know, I'm young and free and Watergate doesn't bother me because I'm alive and I got the wind blowing in my hair and I don't care about the corrupt ways of my elders. But no, actually, he's talking about politically. Uh, we don't care about what Neil Young has to say about Alabama. We don't need him around anyhow. A Southern man doesn't need Neil Young around anyhow, one of the lines. So anyway, it still has a lot of sway, a lot of sway in, um, in Alabama. But it's defeatable now, and we know that. And, 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 and there's a couple reasons why. Uh, one is that there's just a general move to modernity. This is just the way of emergence, of evolution, as traditionalists grow into modernists um, if they continue to grow. And their children are far more likely to do that. And we, when we get to modern, we want to forget all that heritage stuff. It starts to feel quaint or even embarrassing. And we move away from home, sometimes physically, sometimes just psychically. But, um, you know, it's a whole new world where we want to slough that stuff off. And we want to get in the arena, get in the marketplace, uh, you know, express ourselves, uh, challenge ourselves, work with people that are way different than we are. And I always remember something that one of my classmates in the MDiv program at Naropa said. She was from Bosnia and she had lived through a lot of the Bosnian war. And she said, and she was very critical about America in many ways, but she said, one of the things I love about America is that here it doesn't matter what your grandfather did to my grandfather. And, you know, let's just pause for a moment and appreciate how wonderful that is. And what an achievement, you know, what a move forward that is for humanity. So in Alabama, we saw a couple things that I think are really interesting and really heartening for, you know, a move away from 
Trump and Trumpism, you know, fundamentally. Um, one is that, you know, it, it, these, as these states continue to develop and modernize, more modern people move in, they create jobs where more Alabamans can move into modernity because their life conditions change. And, you know, they just want to sell the product of the company they're working for. They're not interested in boycotts. They're not interested in a bunch of controversy. Um, we see this in, in the, you know, that strip along I-65 in, in Alabama and in the, in the northern interstate where there's just, you know, that's the, those are the parts that went for Doug Jones. And, you know, they want to look good. They want to attract smart people from all over the country. They don't want to be seen as a cultural backwater. So that matters a lot. You know, that sort of move into economic uh, modernity sort of drags our identity with it. And that's a good thing. And then a lot of t in, in, in whether or not um, the, the people who voted for Doug Jones were modern in consciousness, I mean, some were, most modernists did, and whatever postmodernists are in Alabama did, but a lot of people who are also traditional voted for Doug Jones because, you know, they're from a tradition that doesn't include the, you know, the, the, the deification of the Old South, and that would be black people. For instance, the, the and um, and what we saw was that there were uh, among the black black population, voting was as high as it was for Obama. Now, still only twenty nine percent, and that strikes me as a tremendous opportunity for the left um, uh, to just you know work on voter turnout. And I guess they did, and I guess they're very happy with the results of it. But it still seems low to me. But it's higher than other special elections and. You know, if it matches Obama, that's a pretty significant um, uh, uh, get out the vote effort. And then the other one, uh, and this is, I think, really very significant for the uh, future of our, the near term future of our politics, and that's the women. Um, among white women, white women still went majority for more, but only by 11 points. I mean, that's a lot. But when you consider that they went for Romney by 55 points, that's a 44% or a 44 point switch. So 44 out of 100 white women decided that they were not going to vote their, you know, company line. And, and I think that's very significant. We saw that in Virginia, uh, in, in Atlanta as well. And I think that you know, maybe <laughs> they were, maybe women, you women tell me if this happened to you, but, you know, maybe that you turned off by the, the tweet that we all woke up to yesterday from Trump, where he talked about uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, who's the New York senator who called for him to resign because of, um, you know, new women coming out about him and so forth, talking Trump. And he tweeted, uh, this is slightly edited, he said, lightweight Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, a total flunky for Chuck Schumer, would come to my office, quote, begging, unquote, for campaign contributions, parentheses, and would do anything for them, in parentheses. And then, you know, he, end, he ends his... Um, uh, tweets with sad, all caps or something. Here he ends it with used, U-S-E-D, used, exclamation point in all caps. And it's just, you know, disgusting. And um, I, um, I wanted to um, 
hang on here one second, see if I have it. Yeah, there it is. Okay, good. Um, I wanted to play something because, you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders came out and she defended Trump by saying that your mind is in the gutter if you thought Trump's tweet was sexual. Uh, you know, the, the idea that she would beg for camp campaign contributions, quote, and would do anything for them, used, you know. And of course, Sanders also said, he said similar things about men, as if that excuses it. And the truth is, he did say similar things about men. And so I want to play this a video he did. This, this I remember, just really got me in the solar plexus when I saw it. Uh, let's see here. Here we go. Press that button and that button, share screen, and... I could have said, Mitt, drop to your knees. He would have dropped to his knees. Because he was begging for my endorsement. I could have said, Mitt, drop to your knees. He would have dropped to his knees. Because he was begging for my endorsement. I could have said, Mitt, drop to your knees. He would have dropped to his knees. Because he was begging for my endorsement. I could have said, Mitt, drop to your knees. He would have dropped to his knees. Because he was begging for my endorsement. I could have said, Mitt, drop to your knees. He would have dropped to his knees. He was big. Remember that one with Mitt Romney? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, at some point, it's, there's just a limit to how much, how disgusting a president can be. Uh, and, um, you know, I guess we have different um, uh, definitions of that. Uh, Breitbart uh, wrote an article about him called The Art of the Troll and about how he just skates right up to that where, you know, it's offensive, but he has plausitive deniability. And, um, you know, so I guess that's one way of looking at it. But another way of looking at it is um, a shocking, I thought, I was shocked by it, editorial today by USA Today which is, you know, tries to be a very middle of the road, non-controversial, kind of white bread national newspaper and, you know, very successful at that sort of bland um, approach. Uh, but uh, they ran an editorial today called A President Who Would All But Call Senator Kirsten Gillibrand a Whore Is Not Fit to Clean the Toilets in the Barack Obama Presidential Library or to shine the shoes of George W. Bush. Wow. And then they go on to, to say, with his latest tweet clearly implying that a United States Senator would trade sexual favors for campaign cash, President Trump has shown he is not fit for office. Rock bottom is no impediment for a president who can always find room for a new low. And that's extraordinary. So, you know, you can just sort of feel this you know, he, he may not lose his hardcore, hardcore traditionalists, even early traditionalists, even Old Testament traditionalist followers who, who love the fact that he goes out and fights for them in a way, or at least fights their enemies. But the late traditionalists, the modernists, uh, the people who aren't white, uh, women, uh, I, I don't think he has any persuasive powers whatsoever with them. And uh, really, at this point, what he touches is uh, besmirched. So um, I'm happy about that. Uh, I, I will, would read, this is, uh, while the USA Today went, you know, really 
far with their editorial. Here's the Wall Street Journal. They said sort of the same thing, but with a little more, uh, they did a little more circumspect. Here's what they wrote. The more defeat should also be a lesson to the Republican Party and President Trump that many GOP voters are still at heart character voters. They will only accept so much misbehavior in a politician, no matter the policy stakes. Mr. Trump opposed Mr. Moore in the primary, but came around to supporting him even after the accusations emerged about Mr. Moore's pursuit of teenage girls while he was in his 30s. The GOP voters who ignored Mr. Trump and rejected Mr. Moore also want a president who acts presidential. So that's the Wall Street Journal is, of course, the mouthpiece of the more establishment right. Um, I think one guy who actually got it right, and he's, he's made me more interested in him, and I wasn't always very interested in him, and that's the other senator from Alabama, Richard Shelby, who would have been, you know, the partner senator. There's two senators per state uh, to Moore if had he won. So he took a risk by saying this a couple days ago. Uh, and he said, um, and by the way, Richard Shelby is quite um, popular in Alabama. He won by 65% last time he ran. And he came out and said he wasn't going to vote for Moore. Uh, and he instead said he was going to write in the name of a distinguished Republican candidate who he didn't name. And other people clearly followed him. In fact, I guess there were more uh, write-ins than there were uh, the number of people that uh, Doug Jones won by. So that was significant. But he uh, was being interviewed. Shelby was being interviewed by the Washington Post. And he said something that I think is a, sort of a nice integration of the traditional and the modern slash postmodern view, and he sort of holds both in a nice integration. And here's what he said. He said, they were talking about the image of Alabama, if, if Roy Moore won. And he said, I think the image of anything matters. It's not 1860. It's not 1900. It's not 1940 or 1964. It's 2017. And Alabama, in a lot of ways, is on the cutting edge. It's on the cusp of a lot of good things. Yes, we are the Deep South. Yes, we are part of the Confederacy. My great-grandfather was a captain in the Confederate Army, and so was everybody else. It's a part of who we are, yet the future is out there. So I like that. I like that. It made me, um, you know, uh, respect him, uh, particularly respect him for not going with the um, crass uh, Trump line of, we need another vote. All right. Well, um, yeah, on with the show. And um, uh, I think it's a really exciting day for uh, those of us who are uh, on the progressive side of the street and um, better than we probably should have hoped. And uh, so let's enjoy it. You know, it's not always going to be this good. Okay, folks, thanks for tuning in. And we will see you on Friday where we have a special Christmas show and a special Christmas guest. So thanks for listening. See you then.